Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Poetry for All. We've got something just slightly different for you today. Normally, Joanne and I record for about an hour, and then we edit each episode down to about 20 minutes. But today, we wanted to give you a fuller picture of the kinds of conversations we have with some of our guests. And so we have an extended version of our conversation with Rick Barrett today. We think it's pretty incredible, and we hope you find it so, too. So, without any further ado, here is episode 32. Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Van Ingen. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we are delighted to have Rick Barrett as our guest. Rick is the author of four collections of poetry. His most recent is The Galleons, which was on the long list for the National Book Award. And he is the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Artist Trust of Washington, the Civitella Ranieri Foundation, the Guggenheim Foundation, and Stanford University, where he served as a Wallace E. Stegner Fellow and Jones Lecturer in Poetry. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Would you be willing to get us started by reading your poem, Cascades 501? Of course. Cascades 501. The man sitting behind me is telling the man sitting next to him about his heart bypass. Outside the train's window, the landscapes smear by the earnest, haphazard distillations of America, the backyards and backsides of houses, the back lots of shops and factories, the underpasses of bridges and then the stretches of actual land, which is not so much land as the kinds of watercourses and greenery that register like luck in the mind. Dense walls of trees, punky little woods, the living continually outgrowing the fallen and decaying, the vines and ivies taking over everything, proving that the force of disorder is also the force of plenty. Then the eye dilating to the sudden clearings, fields, meadows, the bogs that must have been left by retreating glaciers, the creeks, the algae broth of ponds. Then the broad silver of rivers, shiny as turnstiles. Attrition, dispersal, growth, a system unfastened to story, as though the green site itself was beyond story, was peacefully beyond any clear meaning. But why the gust of alertness that comes to me every time any indication of the human passes into sight, like a mirror, like to like, even though I am not the summer backyard with the orange soccer ball resting there, even though I am not the pickup truck parked askew in the back lot, its two doors opened wide, and no one around to show whether it is funny or an emergency that the truck is like that. Each thing looks new, even when it is old and broken down. They had to open me up. The man is now telling the other man. I wasn't there to see it, but they opened me up. 
That's so great. You know, you've said that a lot of your poems begin in a descriptive mode and then dig into other kinds of understanding. So the poem begins with a very simple sentence. The man sitting behind me is telling the man sitting next to him about his heart bypass. How do you go from that heart bypass to outside the train's window, the landscapes smear by the earnest haphazard distillations of America. That's an amazing leap. Can you talk a bit about that? I think that that, that leap that you mentioned is a direct transcription of my, how my mind was working during that actual train ride. We, obviously, we should never assume that the, the narrator in a poem is uh, the author himself or herself or themselves. But in this case, this, this is a, an autobiographical moment in the sense that I was on a train and this actually happened. And I wrote down notes while I was on that train thinking that I would write, once again, I would try to write another being on a train poem. But it did happen that I was sitting on this train and, and overhearing this conversation that was happening behind me. But I was also visually invested in seeing what was outside the window. So that the kind of tension or conflict that I was feeling within myself between you know, being pulled into listening intently to the conversation that I could overhear, but also focusing on what was outside. That leap that you mentioned, that's a kind of description of what I was feeling, that a part of me felt compelled to listen, but another part of me also wanted to block that out. The way we sometimes want to block out, you know, when we are, when we are in a setting where we can't help but hear other people because you know they're talking loudly or they're on a cell phone or you're in proximity and therefore can't avoid listening to them and you don't really want to listen to them um, and your mind has to you know do what it ha- what it can to to take itself away from what it doesn't want to hear so this poem is describing a little bit of that tension where i wanted to look outside but I was also being drawn to things that were happening inside. I love that description because I think it, it highlights a tension that runs all the way through that we get back when you get to the gust of alertness. In some ways, that gust of alertness is interfering with your looking out the window. Like you don't really necessarily want to be overhearing the story, and yet you're kind of drawn to the, the story as such. And then there, you've got this this long looking out the window. But even as you're looking out the window, the tension is built into what you see. So I love this this back-to-back adjectives, earnest, haphazard distillations of America. On the one hand, a thing that is earnest is very intentional. Uh, it's, it's, there's human um, molding of the landscape going on. And at the same time, it's haphazard. It's, it's a force of disorder. There's a kind of plenty that is going on beyond any human intentionality or story or anything to it. And so this tension is built of, of order, of disorder, of story, of non-story, is kind of built throughout the poem and it's kind of uh, reflected in that initial tension of this guy's telling a story. I can't help not hearing it, even though I'd like to look out the window at the, at the scenery as it rolls by. One of the kind of secret projects that I had in writing this book and that's manifested in this poem is I wanted to think about structure. When I teach structure in poetry, uh, my quick definition of structure is order of information. If you're if you're um, telling a story or writing a poem that has materials that you're trying to present, how do you order 
that information or that material in the poem, when does a reader know what? You know, if you're telling a, a story that has a beginning and a middle and an end, as a, as a writer, you don't necessarily have to begin at the beginning. Right. You have a godlike sort of power over your creation, which is the story to move things around and to determine the, the time and the physics of the poem that you are creating, the world that you are creating. And so a lot of the poems in this book are really very intently interested in thinking about structure and how a writer, a poet can manipulate structure to have different kinds of effects in a poem. So in this particular poem, I wanted to create a structure wherein it begins with one element, moves dramatically to another element, and stays on that element for a long time. And then the instigating element comes back for a brief time to close the poem. You know, if you're looking at the poem on the page, proportionately speaking, it's something like 90% of it is about is about the landscapes and the visual things. And something like 10% of it is about the overheard conversation. And so I was interested in that kind of structural arrangement for the poem, that it begins this way, moves into this other thing, ends in this other way, and the proportion seems very, very disproportionate. And yet there's also a kind of symmetry in the disproportion structurally. That's my little kind of craft aside that I will now kind of stop. <laughs> no, it, it, I love it. And I think that's one of the many reasons why I enjoy this poem so much as a reader, because um, we have that first sentence uh, in which the two men are speaking to each other. One man says something about his heart bypass, and then it goes away. It goes mm -hmm. away. And the reader, as a reader, when you read the poem the first time, you think that it's just sort of an instigating situation, right? Mm -hmm. But then it comes back in the final couplet. They had to open me up. The man is now telling the other man. I wasn't there to see it, but they opened me up. Uh, that repetition of they opened me up, they had to open me up, it opens the poem up and makes me want to go back to the top of the poem again to understand everything that you just described about the craft and the structure. It's very compelling. This poem has a lot of content. But for me as a poet, um, I'm really mostly thinking about or fascinated by form in the sense that I always, I always know that content is always there. I, I, I like telling my students that we are content generating machines. <laughs> um, whether you're a writer or not, you're generating content all the time. Psychological content, emotional content, physiological content, electrical mm -hmm. content. You know, if you're alive, you're generating content um, as a human being. Um, what makes us writers different, not special necessarily, but different, is that we have this desire to create shapes or vessels that scoop a little bit of that content into containers. And so, you know, the, the, the question for me as a writer is, what container will I make this time to store or safeguard some of this content that I'm, I'm interested in right now? Mm -hmm. As a writer, I, I, I always take it for granted that content 
is there and that I will always have content because I'm always generating content. But I'm always fascinated by form and the different things that we can make in order to contain some of the things that need to be contained. And so thinking about structure for this book, that was sort of the formal obsession, even though when I have conversations about this book, it's always about the content. Mm. Um, But frankly, you know, speaking as a poet to other poets, I love talking about form more because that that's where I really geeked out as a writer, thinking about structure and how different kinds of structures can be employed in the poems that we write. This is just an aside. Uh, I, I don't know if this will make it into the, the final <laughs> cut, but uh, something funny really happened um, to us at the, when we started working on this podcast almost a year and a half ago now. So we met in graduate school like almost mm-hmm. 20 years ago at Northwestern. And I, I've known him for like 20 years, and I never knew this about him, uh, that we actually read poems in very similar ways. And the way I found that out is because I don't remember what poem it was, maybe something by William Shakespeare or something. And he said, you know, why don't I send you my slides that I often <laughs> shared with my students when I teach this poem? And when he sent the slides to me, um, each sentence was color coded. And then he had isolated all the verbs. And then he had isolated all the nouns. And then there was another slide that isolated the adjective. I was like, uh oh. And then he isolated the turn of the sonnet. And like, I do that too, but we had actually never discussed it. That's the, funny. The, you know, the reason I'm rambling about this is because, you know, you're talking about the, the subtleties of craft. When we read your poem, the first thing we did was highlight each sentence in a different color. And the reason I love doing that as a reader is even if the poem looks like it's very, a very uniform couplet following couplet, it's actually incredibly rich and varied because the lengths of your sentences are changing all the time. Mm-hmm. So you, you start out with two couplets that look like they're pretty straightforward. They're, they're following sentence lengths. And then you get into these fragments, the backyards and backsides of houses, the back lots of shops and factories, the underpasses of bridges, and then the stretches of actual land. Each of those is an individual clause um, Mm. that kind of speeds up as the landscape speeds up uh, within the speaker's field of vision. And, And I just love how further down in the poem, then the sentences get really long, especially that sentence that begins, but why the gust of alertness that comes to me every time any indication of the human passes into sight? And then it goes on for six more lines. That's incredible, you know? <laughs> uh, so I love the way the tightness of those couplets is juxtaposed against the variety of lengths of sentences and also uh, those insertions of white space. And now I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> well, no, I, no we're, we're really getting into the, okay. the, geek, the geeking out. No, yes, I, we are. I love discussions about syntax because, um, as you mentioned, the, the, the poems in the book are, are in couplets. And, and that was a very early choice on my part. Mm. It was a very stubborn choice, you know, just as a kind of a wild kind of uh, challenge to myself, I said, why don't we make the whole book, you know, in couplets? Mm. And thinking also about Yeats's idea of the fascination of what's difficult. When you create a difficulty for yourself as a poet, as a writer, you go into a kind of a problem-solving mode um, formally that really makes the work exciting. And as I said, you know, content kind of takes care of itself, but form, you always have to attend to form. 
And so making a decision about the couplet very early on made me uh, or activated all of these other questions for me about how can I create dynamism in the poems when I've created this restriction that is going to make the poems sound, sound the same, look the same, move the same. The couplet has a kind of tyranny uh, that I invited because I wanted to be resourceful and inventive in other ways in the poem, in the poems. And that includes what you just said about syntax, where, you know, if the couplet is enforcing a particular kind of energy on the poem, how can I use syntax to create countervailing energies, different ways of creating texture in the poem? And there are other poems in the book that use other formal means of doing that. There's a poem where I stop using punctuation. There, uh, hmm. There's a poem where it's one sentence long. So ah. that's another syntactical gambit that I brought into that confrontation with the couplet. This sort of this immovable decision that I made, how do I create variety and kind of formal thrill when a fundamental decision has already been made for me. The, the, those who are listening will not have it in front of them to see, but where the lines break often contains a kind of surprise to it. There's a kind of mental uh, shift that has to happen as you turn to the next line, even if you keep reading without pausing. And I love the kind of surprises that you build into the beginnings of new couplets. And so, for example, we have not so much land, but the kinds of watercourses and greenery that register and then we turn to the next stanza and it says, like luck in the mind. That is not a simile I saw coming, <laughs> right? Or a little bit later, proving that the force of disorder is also the force. And then we break and go to the next couplet, force of what, right? Force of plenty. The force of disorder is the force of plenty. Mm -hmm. Or even another surprising simile, then the broad silver of rivers shiny as turnstiles. The as turnstiles is the new couple and so there's the line breaks are also being used for that element of surprise to turn us just ever so slightly to begin us thinking down a different trail as well in in the first case when you talk about the watercourses and greenery that register and then that's where the line break is like luck in the mind that is how it feels in the mind to register these these things out the window and that the same thing happens with the next moment where Everything is, you know, everything is disordered and seemingly falling apart. And yet it also uh, evidences the force of plenty. Mm -hmm. So how do, we, um, how do we use form to support or emphasize or highlight or intensify content? Yeah. In your last book, Chord, you have this poem, The Poem is a Letter Opener. And it says, the poem is a letter opener, and it is the letter that is answered or not answered. So it's, it's both the letter opener and the letter itself. And I love that image because um, it also helps get away from the sense that there is a content that has to be deciphered, um, mm -hmm. that there is only one content or one meaning. And in many ways, when I read this poem, Cascades 501, I think of it as actually a reflection on poetry itself. Uh, on the, the forces of order and disorder that go into the making of a single poem, the forces of plenty that seem to sort of overwhelm the poem itself, the, the kinds of multiple meanings that might emerge. And in many ways, what a poem offers us is a kind of truck askew in the backyard. 
And the reader is left wondering, what's the story here? And and able then to attach it in different ways to their lives. And so uh, it's a kind of delivery of, of a letter, but the, the reception of the letter is as important as the letter itself. I like what you just said, because it reminds me that one of the ways that I think about poetry and its role in the world is that it's it's a kind of recalcitrance against the ways that everyday life, capitalistic life, simplifies everything, the way we feel, the way we consume, the way we, we interact with each other. You know, we, we move through life with values that are sort of uh, associated with efficiency and speed mm. and um, sort of a kind of a, a quickness. But poetry, um, and maybe I include the poem that we're talking about now, Cascades 501, resists that kind of simpleness, simplicity, or efficiency. It demands of the reader a kind of slowing down and a full body sort of openness to the experience of the poem. We, you know, for many of us, we move through the day using only the front part of our brains Mm -hmm. to get through the day. And um, a poem like this yeah, you can you can approach it using just the front part of your brain, but that's a very unsatisfying sort of way of interacting with the poem because you will be frustrated because you can't process the poem yeah. as simple information that you can extract and then move forward very quickly. It stops you. It makes you want to stop and ask, beyond the front part of my brain, how does the rest of my body feel with the experience that the poem is giving me? Uh, how do my feet feel? How do my how do my yeah. ears feel? How does the 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 back of my head feel? Yeah. So it's a kind of a full body um, manifestation, and I think that's what poems are supposed to do to remind us that we have these bodies that we live in, and spirits and and souls that that we own, and you know to kind of be reminded of those dimensions of ourselves, mm-hmm. but. It requires time, it requires attention, and it requires a beautiful labor. Yeah, Another reason I love your poetry in general, and this poem in particular, is because so often it feels like, you know, to borrow from that famous quote, like a mind thinking. The poem is Mm -hmm. a mind thinking. And uh, the poetic speaker in this poem does not speak, but there's a whole landscape within the mind as a result of the landscape that's outside of that window. And it's there's almost an ethical impulse then to imagine how many other worlds are in the minds of any person who may not even be speaking or interacting with you. And, you know, to go to your question about, you know, what is poetry for, I'm embarrassed because I'm trying to remember which poem you wrote, and I can't remember if it's from Chord or The Galleons, but you have a sentence in one of your poems where you say that, where things are joined or connected is where you can tell the most about them. Oh, you know what? It's in this poem called Virginia Woolf's Walking Stick. Oh my God, I love that poem. Yes. <laughs> and um, you may have to come back for another episode on that one. <laughs> but the, 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 and it's on page 22 of the book, and the, the lines that you're referring to go like this Looking around at the things that surround me, I have come to understand that the test of how well a thing is made is to look at the places where its parts come together, joints, seams, corners, folds. 
That's amazing. I, it's a, an amazing sentence all by itself, but it's also an amazing sentence when thinking about how poems work because as I hear you talking about this poem, uh, we've talked about the sentence lengths, and I feel like whatever that connective tissue is between the stanzas, between the sentences, quite often the silence and the leaps that occur between and among the sentences is where a lot of the excitement occurs because how you're joining seemingly disparate thoughts mm-hmm. it is what makes this poem exciting for me. We're going to go deeper into sort of the, the geek part <laughs> of being a poet. So as I had mentioned earlier, I chose the couplet very early on as a way of making things challenging for myself. Another sort of secret project that I had for myself and I was thinking about structure and how poems can be structured I was thinking about chess. So I I don't know if if either of you play chess or know chess, but you know that every um, piece in chess has a different way of moving on the board, has a different concentration of power. Mm -hmm. So the pawn can only move forward and one square at a time. And the bishop is always moving at a slant. Mm -hmm. The the knight is always creating this L-shaped, Um, motion. Mm -hmm. And then there's the queen who can do whatever the heck she wants. Mm -hmm. But there there really was a a part of my brain uh, when I was writing these poems thinking, what about writing a poem that moves structurally the way a pawn moves? Or Mm -hmm. a poem that moves the way the knife moves with these swerving L shapes in structure? Or a poem that moves the way the queen moves, which is with absolute power and determination that is not circumscribed. So the Cascades 501 poem is doing a little bit of what a knight might do, where it does a kind of an L shape. Yeah. And then there are other poems in the book that are, that are also doing these other kind of, these other kinds of moves that feel very jarring, but also inevitable at the same time. Well, hearing you talk also makes me think about, um, I think it was maybe David Kirby, the poet David Kirby, who said this, that uh, for him for him as a poet, so much of his work, he feels like, is just moving the pieces around like it's mm. a puzzle until it feels right. Mm-hmm. Right? So what you said about uh, manipulating the narrative, not necessarily just creating a, a story that begins with A and goes to B and goes to C, but creating suspense and momentum through the rearrangement of some of those details. But also, you know, the way you're imposing these various kinds of structures until they work for mm-hmm. the poem you want to create. Well, and the other thing that Knight can do, of course, just to think about it in relation to this poem is leap things. Uh, which no other mm-hmm. piece can do. And there's so many big leaps that get, t- there's sort of swerving leaps that get made in this poem uh, that suddenly connect two things that weren't necessarily connected. Of course, the first big leap is the one Joanne pointed out between that first couplet and the second, the, the person talking mm-hmm. behind you on the train, the landscape out the window. But to think a bit about how those leaps relate to the places where the joints are, where the connections get made, and how that infuses the idea of poetry. What I love about it, and, and one way I think about poetry, is that is that the reader has to be part of that process. Right. The structure, the form they're doing it, 
they're creating the space for it. They're almost like laying out that landscape that you see out the window. But poems, I think of poetry in some ways as a, to quote your own poem here, as, as a system unfastened to story mm. or as peacefully beyond any clear meaning. Um, not that it's beyond meaning, but that it's peacefully beyond any clear meaning and that it requires another person in the train, so to speak, looking at it, mm-hmm. reading it, uh, to complete its meaning, to think about it in relation to themselves. And so there's a there's a kind of openness to poetry. And that's, of course, where this own where this poem ends. I wasn't there to see it, but they opened me up and thinking about poetry as the thing that is peacefully beyond any clear meaning, but at the same time that opens us up. That's in, in, in many ways why I thought of this uh, throughout as a kind of poem about poetry itself. It, it reminds me of, of another thing that I talk to my students about in regards to not just poetry, but about um, creative writing in general, that it, it begins as expression, but ends as communication. Mm. And, and, you know, the, the kind of the impulse um, out of the self to say something through language, that's a, a, a very intense impulse. And eventually it, it wants to find another person, another being to receive that, which is when communication comes in. Mm. Obviously, there are a lot of poems that we write that's only for ourselves. And that's good, too, because we're, that means we're communicating with other selves within our own self. Mm-hmm. But that the completion that Abram is talking about, that's really about that desire to communicate. Yeah. yeah. I mentioned to you shortly before we started recording that we have two poems in a row about ecology, environment, and the fall, the Keats, and then Kenyon, uh, and in, in many ways thinking about a landscape without human beings in the sense of mm-hmm. Keats, uh, a landscape and a life to that landscape that will outlast in, in, in many ways human life itself. And then in the Kenyan poem, she has elements of that, but then a kind of infusion of human beings uh, throughout the landscape as well. And mm-hmm. I find this poem really interesting to think about that element of a kind of environment and a kind of life that is both infused with human beings and at the same time outlasting or beyond the scope of of human life or human definition itself. And just to mention a couple of places in your poem where we get that sense of a really big time that exists that is in a certain sense before and after human life. So y- you talk about the bogs that must have been left by retreating glaciers. And then mm-hmm. you say the creeks, mm-hmm. the algae broth of ponds. And, and the first thing I think of when I think of algae broth is like the beginning of life on earth yeah. in those first cells that came out of like these ponds, right? So I feel like there's a gesture towards big time here that's also being made. Yeah, I, I you just reminded me that where I am right now uh, in Tacoma, Washington, 10,000 years ago, this part of the the continent was under a mile of ice. Mm. We were in the ice age 10,000 years ago. Right now it's, it's in the sixties, it's temperate, it's cloudy, but, uh, and it's, and it's inhabitable. We can live here, but you know, 10,000 years ago we could not. And Mm -hmm. who knows what, what this place will be like just a thousand years from now. You know, the, there's evidence uh, everywhere that time is so much larger than the moment that we're in. Part of poetry's beauty is that it sort of illustrates this conflict or tension that I think is present between human time, which is linear, 
in the sense that a human being moves through time with a beginning, middle, and an end. And so there's a kind of finiteness to human time. But cosmic time or universe time is cyclical. You know, it's constantly rolling over from season to season to season in a kind of endless way. And so that conflict between linear time and cyclic time, the, the kind of the pain that that, that that conflict creates for humans, that's what I think poems can illustrate, can show. And I think maybe this poem is doing a little bit of that in the sense that there's evidence all outside the window of universe time, nature time, cyclic time, in the in juxtaposition with human time, which is the time of vulnerability, the man having a heart bypass, which points to the fact that we live in bodies that have a very finite amount of time given to, to them. Well, I think, too, hearing you talk makes me feel like the poem, maybe the poetic speaker, is reassured in some ways by what you say about the insistence of nature to be itself and to insert itself with or without us. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if reassurance is the right word, but you know, uh, our time here is limited, but the abundance and insistence of nature doesn't feel like it is. Mm. Do you both know that amazing poem by Louise Glick, Witchgrass from The Wild Iris? I don't. Well, I, I would invite you to revisit The Wild Iris, which is a, a great book. Yeah. But it, there's a particular poem in that book. So the book is comprised of different poetic speakers. Um, plants speak, flowers speak, um, God speaks. But there's a, there's a particular poem there called Witchgrass, where witchgrass speaks. And um, witchgrass, the the the, the speaker in that poem basically chides humans for trying to create order, trying to create gardens, when there's all of this or- disorder all around. And the ending of that poem, the witchgrass says, I was here before you, I will be here after you, I will constitute the field, hmm. um, or something like that. Yeah. But it's this terrifying voice from this plant that basically reminds humans that, you know, here you are kind of making a mess of things, getting all emotional about things. It's okay. <laughs> you, you, you will die, but I'll still be here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this, you know, this very powerful voice of nature that Glick has created in, in that poem. <laughs> and, and so maybe that's one of the secret influences on this poem, because I do love that poem so much that mm-hmm. nature is there. It's, you know, we are harming it, and yet it will still be there, regardless of what we do. That dense wall of trees, the, the punky, I love this, punky little woods, the living <laughs> continually outgrowing the fallen and decaying. Yeah, I, I love those lines. So with all that you've taught us about this poem, um, would you be willing to read it again, please? Sure. Cascades 501. The man sitting behind me is telling the man sitting next to him about his heart bypass. Outside the train's window, the landscapes smear by, the earnest, haphazard distillations of America. 
the backyards and backsides of houses, the back lots of shops and factories, the underpasses of bridges, and then the stretches of actual land, which is not so much land as the kinds of watercourses and greenery that register like luck in the mind. Dense walls of trees, punky little woods, the living continually outgrowing the fallen and decaying, the vines and ivies taking over everything, proving that the force of disorder is also the force of plenty. Then the eye dilating to the sudden clearings, fields, meadows, the bogs that must have been left by retreating glaciers, the creeks, the algae broth of ponds, then the broad silver of rivers, shiny as turnstiles, attrition, dispersal, growth, a system unfastened to story, as though the green site itself was beyond story, was peacefully beyond any clear meaning. But why the gust of alertness that comes to me every time any indication of the human passes into sight, like a mirror, like to like, even though I am not the summer backyard with the orange soccer ball resting there, even though I am not the pickup truck parked askew in the back lot, its two doors opened wide, and no one around to show whether it is funny or an emergency the truck is like that. Each thing looks new, even when it is old and broken down. They had to open me up, the man is now telling the other man. I wasn't there to see it, but they opened me up. Wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. For more information about Rick Barrett and his work, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you so much for being our guest today. What a pleasure this was. Thank you both. And thank you all for listening.